today is the 4th of July. Happy 4th of July. Individuals throughout the United States are going to commemorate this occasion today, how this nation broke away from the British kingdom 245 years ago, and to celebrate, they're going to have beer and barbecues, pancake feeds and picnics, parades and pledges, fireworks and fire trucks. And as they observe this holiday, as they typically do, they will reflect on principles of freedom. Freedom to self-govern, freedom to worship, freedom to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. So, so this, this morning, it's fitting that as we conclude our preaching series in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 through 7, something we started back the week after Easter, we will consider freedom that we have as Christians. In particular, we'll, we'll talk about the freedom we have from earthly things determining how we view ourselves, how we view others, and determining how we live. This view that earthly, earthly things determine how we view ourselves, de- determines how we view others, and determines how we live, it's sometimes referred to as secularism. Okay? This is a perspective of the world and culture and time that it sees things of this earth, it sees natural things as being ultimate. Those are the things that matter. So so the person that's rooted in secularism looks to the type of job he or she has, the the types of possessions he or she has, the the type of education that he or she was able to obtain. They look to his or her marital status how successful he or she is in the eyes of others, how much pleasure and comfort he or she is experiencing day to day. The the secularist looks to those things for ultimate satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment. So our friend Kyle Osborne talked last week about two earthly marks in the city of Corinth that tended to determine an individual's worth and value, whether or not someone was circumcised and whether or not someone was a slave. Now, in the passage we're examining this morning, the Apostle Paul turns his attention from those situations to the circumstance of singles. And what we'll find, when we do not prioritize the things of this earth, individuals don't need to be married to have worth and value. In fact, when comparing the two situations, being married and being single, Paul will commend singleness, saying there's some advantages to being single. So on a day the United States reflects on our freedom as a nation, our big idea will be freedom from secularism serves as a foundation to commend singleness. Now, as we'll find, Paul is speaking to the situations of singles in this passage, but, but he's certainly not saying to those of you who are married, tune out, right? Don't do that. It's, it's helpful to understand how Paul engages an issue that, that is preference rather than a command, what, what the theological principles in view are, how he applies them, what is, is his posture and tone as he engages this issue, what are his 
concerns. And, and what we'll find is as we consider this, this situation of singleness, every Christian probably has some faulty perspectives that we need to reflect on. So that means pay attention whether you're married or single. So if you've not yet opened up your Bible or Bible app, go ahead and do that to 1 Corinthians, please 7, 1 Corinthians 7. We'll be examining the passage read earlier, verses 25 through 40, uh, and I'll begin with 25 through 28. Paul says, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So, so the word translated virgin here, it is a person who has been celibate. And more specifically, most people believe Paul is re referring to someone who is not yet married, but is committed to do so. Kind of like being engaged, but, but it's a committed pre-engagement, kind of betrothed, a status we don't really have in the West in the 21st century. In speaking about this status, Paul qualifies what he says with, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion. When we encountered similar language a couple weeks ago, Pastor Chris clarified, Paul, Paul is not saying that his words do not have the authority of Scripture, or these words are not worthy of being in the Bible, or these words are not authoritative. Rather, what he's saying is not rooted in the Old Testament or specific words from Christ or what the other apostles were saying. But Paul's being cautious. It is a bit of a new word for God's people, and he is communicating a preference, an issue requiring discernment, not a command. So in speaking to the status of these women, he broadens his language to include men. And he says, rather than be married, there's, there's value remaining single. At the time Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, earthly status, whether or not someone was married or single, it very much determined earthly value and worth. A man who did not marry, who had no heir, no one to carry on the family line, was looked down upon culturally as a bit of a failure. A woman who did not marry, she, she could not own property. It was difficult for her to feed herself. If she had children, maybe out of wedlock, it was difficult for her to, to feed herself and difficult to feed them. A single man or woman, as individuals focused on earthly things or secular life, would have been viewed as a sort of second-class citizen. Paul affirms to become valuable, to become worthy. A woman did not need a man, and a man did not need a woman or the children she could potentially bring. Each person had value regardless of whether or not they were married. Now, this view that singles are second-class citizens, 
you may think it is not true of the time we live in. But let's consider. You think about that phrase, happily ever after. What's the first word in that phrase? They. Not, not he or she. They, a couple, lived happily ever after. As we think about hit Hollywood series over the course of the last 20 years, not crime shows, not crime shows. Shows like The Office, Grey's Anatomy, Parenthood, The Bachelor, Friends. With that one, I may be pushing the 20-year time frame. But the last episode was in 2004. Each of these has singles, but they're typically pursuing romantic relationships. I'm not aware, and maybe some of you can enlighten me, of productions upholding a character living as a, a single, not romantically or sexually active, demonstrating the positive virtues of life as a single. There may be positive examples after marriage, but I, I can't think of one prior to marriage. Instead, when the life of a single is portrayed positively, it is because the person is free to live for self, free to live for pleasure, free to be intimate with whomever he or she wants, whenever he or she wants. And we have movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin that mock the life of a celibate single. So an individual not experiencing romantic relationship or sexual fulfillment is portrayed as less than second class or less than human. In upholding freedom from secularism, Paul is teaching, don't buy into a cultural belief that being single and celibate is second class, that you need a man or a woman, you need to be experiencing sex to be complete and to be fulfilled. I think a challenge for the church, and Paul encountered this same challenge, we tend to think in either or categories. Either the single person is more holy or the married person is more holy. If that's true, a faulty foundation to commend singleness would be saying singleness makes someone more holy or more mature or more complete. Paul, Paul is avoiding such a mindset. See, in addressing the issue, is it better to remain single? It seems like he's saying yes and no. It depends. So much so, in preparing to preach this passage, and in reading this passage, Paul is vacillating, saying, it's good for singles to remain single, and it's good for singles to be, get married. The culmination of his argument is in verses 36 through 38, and here's what he says. If any man thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage, and if he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. So then he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. Is it better to remain single? Yes and no. Paul is saying, even if I tell you there are some advantages to being single, in Christ, there is freedom for you to be married 
and freedom to be single. Both being single and being married are holy and complete. It's not either singleness is complete and right or being married is complete and right. Both are. One of the the things that scholars believe Paul was addressing in dealing with the issue of whether or not singles should marry is something called asceticism. This is a, a theological belief that denying earthly pleasure, in this case, denying marriage, that made someone more holy or more spiritual or more mature. Essentially, it was a theological belief that equated earthly status of being single as more holy or more spiritual. In saying it's good to remain single, Paul wanted to clarify. He may prefer it, but but he doesn't agree with that faulty theology. Remaining single or getting married, that does not make someone more holy or more complete or more spiritually mature. So, So today's church, rather than tempted to view singleness as more holy, perhaps tends to adopt the opposite. In his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, Pastor and author, who is single, uh, who, who, this, this man is single, Sam Albury says, in much of our thinking, singleness, if downright bad, is certainly not seen as good. One writer noted the difference between Christian books on marriage and those on singleness. Singleness is assumed to be pretty much awful. The point of the books is, therefore, to see if we might be able to eke out something just tolerable from it. Even the way we describe singleness reflects this. It is almost always defined in the negative, as the absence of something. It is the state of not being married. It is the absence of a significant other. I think we, we sometimes worry that if we commend singleness, if we communicate or uphold being single is right and good and spiritually complete, we will undermine the worth and value of marriage. And we certainly do not want to do that. You know, if, if you read Scripture, including other passages written by Paul that address marriage, he does not believe marriage is bad. He had an extremely high view of marriage. He did not provide opportunities or affirm opportunities for people to divorce. He affirmed that the marital relationship reflected the beauty and magnificence of the relationship Christ has with God's people. But, but singleness is not a secondary status. In asceticism, believing singleness is a better spiritual state cannot be a foundation to affirm singleness. Paul knew that affirming a status of either being married or being single, that that makes us more complete or more holy, that would be flawed and false. Those are earthly circumstances that do not determine eternal realities. Paul wants God's people to be free from such an earthly mindset, to be free from secularism. So he provides this clarification. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters, The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep 
as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the world, this world in its current form is passing away. This is Paul reiterating what Jesus says in the Gospels, that we live in the world, but we are not of the world. You see, the difference between a secular worldview and the worldview of God's people, the, the Christian understands the circumstances and situations of this world are temporary. The, the time is limited. The, the world in its current form is passing away. The secularist believes and assumes that tomorrow will be just like today. History is just a bunch of natural events. But, but the Christian understands tomorrow may be like today, but ultimately it's going to look significantly different. The way we are living, it will pass away. Paul reminds Christians of this reality because there's a, there's a temptation to be arrogant about the time we live in, to, to see ourselves as immortal, to, to believe the time we are living on this earth is ultimately the time that matters. When we begin to adopt that belief, we look to earthly circumstances or earthly situations as to what ultimately determines our meaning and our morality and to what brings ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. Listen to, to Pastor Mark Dever describe how this mentality creeps in. A kind of creeping unbelief can get the upper hand. One may begin by believing in this age as well as the next, concentrating on this age rather than the next, emphasizing this age rather than the next, concerned with this age rather than the next, thinking less of the next, de-emphasizing the next, questioning the next, ignoring the next, forgetting the next, denying the next. This is the secularism that has grown in our society. And this is the secularism that has even grown in our churches. See, as Paul clarifies his broader concern, desiring Christians to experience freedom from things of this earth, freedom from secularism, an implication of this text that we need to consider is how secularism has crept into our daily lives. So I want to pause and ask, in what ways are you living with a secular mindset? In what ways are earthly circumstances determining the meaning and trajectory for how you see yourself and how you view others? As you think about the ideal life, what, what brings ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction? So to those of you in the workforce, do, do the circumstances of your organization, the feedback from your supervisors, does that ultimately drive your mood and mentality? Dictating whether you are hopeful and happy or avoidant, absent, maybe even angry. The appearance, does the recent behavior of a child determine how you view yourself? 
a failure and a fraud, or if they're behaving well as a success and a saint. As you reflect on political circumstances this July 4th, do those circumstances determine how you view others? Your primary relational alliances and divisions determined by political views and values? Or is how you view others rooted in eternal realities? Acknowledging people in your tribe are perishing and more than anything need to hear the message of the gospel. And people who think differently than you, who know Christ, they are brothers and sisters in a common faith. To those experiencing a season of suffering, physical suffering or emotional suffering, is earthly freedom from that season what offers ultimate satisfaction? And to those of you involved in an ongoing battle with sin, is freedom from that sin what will bring ultimate peace and comfort? But Paul is not saying... He's not saying that earthly circumstances should have no impact on how you live our life, how you live. To those who weep, Paul does not say, stop weeping, get over yourself, deny your tears. What he does say is those who weep should live as those who do not weep. Those who rejoice should live as those who do not rejoice. Earthly circumstances should not determine your ultimate reality, how you view yourself, how you view others, and what you look to for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. The more spiritual life, the good life, is not about pursuing or obtaining the right earthly circumstances. It's about having a proper eternal perspective. So after clarifying freedom from secularism is a right foundation to understand and consider earthly status, Paul returns to his rationale of why he prefers someone remain single. And interestingly enough, the difference Paul focuses on is that the married person, by nature of being married, is more concerned about the things of this world, earthly concerns. In contrast, the single person is more free to focus on things of the Lord. So here's Paul in verses 32 through 35. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy. Excuse me. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So Paul's explaining his language commending singleness, that he's trying to spare a single person from experiencing the challenges of the married life. 
So Sam Albury, he, he contends that Christians today often think living as a single is harder because of the lack of physical and spiritual and emotional and sexual intimacy. When enslaved to secularism, when we adopt that viewpoint, believing earthly circumstances offer ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment, we will be prone to agree. But in experiencing, but in explaining this rationale to remain single, Paul is saying that a difference between the married life and the single life is the married life. That's the one that's more complex. There is twice as much sin, twice as much family baggage, twice as many burdens one needs to be concerned with. And that's without kids being in the picture. A husband and a wife, they have an earthly duty to each other, thinking about how they can love and encourage one another. So Paul isn't saying that the single life is easy, but he is saying the, the single life is by nature, it's simpler. It's not concerned with a spouse or children, so a single can be more concerned with the things of the Lord. So, so during the month of June, uh, my wife and I, we took our kids on summer vacation. Several years ago, we realized, hey, having five kids um, on our level of income that meant it would be difficult to go to places like Disney or tourist traps like Branson, so we would need to camp. We would need to hike. Uh, we would need to have campfires. And so this year, our daughter who graduated requested that we travel to Florida. I'm sure that she had hopes of visiting Disney, but that was out of her price range. So we settled on, on visiting a state park on the beach where we could swim and get some sun. So while making this trip with the camper, we experienced a mishap. Now my kids know we always do. There is always at least one. Uh, we've blown an engine. Uh, we've, we've had loose lug nuts destroy a tire rim. Uh, we've had a tire burst. I think it comes down to me not being very skilled or handy, which those of you who know me uh, is very true. So this year, as we were traveling on the interstate from Kansas City to St. Louis, wasn't one tire. We burst two tires. Thankfully, thankfully, I've gotten wiser. Slowly that's happening. And so rather than travel with our normal one spare, I listened to the prompting of my wife and I bought two. But this meant I needed to devote time to change two tires on a pop-up camper. So first of all, in comparing situations, I don't know any sane 45-year-old single that would spend time driving with a pop-up camper halfway across the country, okay? They would be free to devote their vacation time in other ways. Second, as I am laying down, lining a tire jack with the frame of this camper, with semis barreling 70 miles an hour a few feet from my body, by nature of having a wife and family, I was preoccupied. If I get crushed by a semi, what are my kids going to do? Will they be provided for? How much will they, how will they deal with such a disappointment and grief? How will Michelle, my wife, handle such a circumstance? A single person is free from such concerns. They're free to devote greater attention and time and resources 
to the Lord. Now, now, if you're single, you can certainly, you can certainly fill up your life with worldly concerns. You can find earthly things besides a marriage and children to devote, to devote your attention to. And being attempted to embrace a secular mindset, believing earthly things provide ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment may lead you to do so. But at a baseline, in the absence of having a family, you have more discretionary income, you have greater margin when it comes to how you direct your energy and time. Paul is saying a single has greater freedom and flexibility to build relationships with parents, with moms and dads, and with children of those mothers and fathers. This freedom means building more relational capital and awareness of sin patterns and struggles someone that is more occupied may not be able to do. I know some of the singles in our church do this really well. You think about how you can bless parents and their children by spending time with them and coming alongside them providing child care from time to time, how you can bless them with a gift or two that ministers to them rather than focus on not being married, rather than filling your life with worldly concerns, you have used your status as a single to bless others. To the glory of Christ, you are living out Paul's message. Thank you. I think a real, I think a real temptation in a church like ours a church that emphasizes living in community with one another. Uh, as we disciple one another, as we encourage one another and challenge one another, we can be tempted to believe that earthly status and earthly circumstance serve as a proper foundation to minister to one another. And, and so if that's the case, a single is disqualified from speaking the word of God to someone who is married. Here's more from Albury. What matters most in ministering to marrieds and parents is not personal experience, but faithfulness to Scripture. At the end of the day, what a congregation most needs to hear is not the wisdom a pastor might have accumulated over the years as a husband or father, but God's wisdom revealed in his word. It is worth saying that single people can often be guilty of the same mistake, feeling cynical anytime a married pastor deigns to speak on singleness. As a church, we need to be aware of false ways we link spiritual maturity or being spiritually complete to a status of being married. That individuals by nature of being single are somehow lacking. To be married is to be complete, to be Unmarried is to be incomplete. And so parents, something you need to consider. Are you dissatisfied if your child does not get married? Is that a distasteful outcome to you? Are you content if a child remains single and does not marry and does not have children? I'm not telling you it's sinful to want grandchildren, or to desire your child to have a husband or wife. But I am saying, don't associate an earthly status with being complete or being mature or being able to contribute to a church in a healthy way. One last thing before I conclude. As Paul highlights 
the benefits of remaining single. I think it's important to note, he is not saying, if you are single and want to be married, be happy that you're single. Don't grieve. Don't pursue relationships. Paul is saying there are good things about being single. And even if I prefer singleness, it's okay to want to be married. It's okay to want a husband or a wife. Just don't buy into a belief that being single is second class. And you need to be married. You need a man or you need a woman. You need to be having sex to be complete and whole. Don't believe the single life is harder and miss the opportunities the single life, the single is free to experience. One of the things that Paul understood that we need to have in view is the character of Christ. On earth, he lived as a single. This did not make him more holy or spiritual, and it certainly did not mean he was a second-class citizen, less than human. In addition to walking the earth as a single man, Scripture declares that he is a husband who washes his bride, the church, clean. He sacrifices and surrenders to make her holy. So the earthly status of being single or being married does not make someone more spiritual or more complete or more holy. Christ does regardless of earthly status. So Paul does not want secularism. Our view of the times we live in, our view of earthly circumstances or situations to determine how we view ourselves, how we view others, and how we make decisions. He wants singles to be free of secular influences and faulty theological views. He wants all Christians to be free from living a life rooted in secularism, to know this world is passing away. So on this day that we declare independence and freedom from the rule and reign of the British monarchy, a day that we may be prone to declare our allegiances to pursue earthly life, earthly liberty, and earthly happiness as Christians. May we remember our freedom from earthly things, from secularism to determine meaning and morality. And may we declare our allegiance to Christ, knowing this world is passing away, to live for his glory. May we be that type of people. Let me pray.